Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of season two of The Complete, The Complete Elaine May. This was going to be the last episode, but we have decided uh, not to make it the last episode. Isn't that right, Travis? Yeah, you know, uh, there was some very nice uh, feedback from some of our listeners and uh, we decided, yeah, let's do her final documentary and a little roundup of some of her other accomplishments because... As we've progressed through all of her work, you know, uh, she deserves more, more than she got. So let's give her one more, more than she got before when she made her movies. Yeah, and I actually haven't seen that documentary. And so hearing from people that it's not just a conventional PBS, uh, you know, profile piece kind of thing um, made me curious to to give it a little bit more attention when we watch it. Yeah. So we're going to put that off and then we can kind of do our whole bonus summary kind of thing to maybe even watch a few of her, uh, her other associated movies. Yeah, that she's, she's some done. of her written works. And, uh, the other thing I'd like to check out is there's a, uh, longer, I think they recorded, uh, Mike Nichols interviewing her and her interviewing Mike Nichols. And, uh, yeah, uh, that was just recently in the past couple of years. So I'd like to watch that thoroughly now that, uh, we've watched all of her movies and kind of get some insight and talk a little bit more about that. So that'll be fun. I haven't watched it cause I didn't want to ruin anything or have my opinion swayed one way or the other. I just want to watch the films on their own and then dive into it afterwards. So it'll be good. Yeah. I think that's a, a good move, especially on the movie that we're going to talk about right now, which is, uh, which is one that has so much around it that it's hard to actually dig through all of it to get to the actual movie. So yeah. we're definitely going to touch on, you know, all of the craziness surrounding Ishtar. Uh, it's, it's almost a, a symbol more than a, uh, more than a movie that, that name. Um, but, uh, but we'll, we'll try to st- stick as close to the, uh, to the text, the original text as uh, the source text. It's not what, that's what the, the fancy people call it. I think it. that's what they call it. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll, we'll try to do that as much as possible and, and get, get past all of the, all the BS up front. But, you know, telling the truth can be, uh, can um, be it, sticky. Sticky. It can be, it can be uh, icky, sticky, wiki, um, and tricky. <laughs> it can be tricky. <laughs> Tricky, tricky. Why? Why? Well, I, why is it tricky? I don't know. Because uh, of the people. <laughs> that... sounds... Yeah, I've had that. Uh, I've had that song stuck in my head all week, oh, which is a, like a blessing and a curse because it, it's a pretty funny song. It but it, oh man, it gets stuck in your head. It's not a good song. No, but <laughs> I love. Oh man, the fact that, well, that we'll yeah, it. we're gonna talk about that. But <laughs> the fact that that song is a running joke with the punchline delivered at the end is one of my favorite things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the far side cartoon about Ishtar because, um, this was the first way that I ever heard of the movie Ishtar. And I guess by, uh, association, the first time I ever heard of a movie, uh, directed by Elaine May, which was, you know, I really enjoyed the cartoon The Far Side when I was a kid. Um, and there is a cartoon from The Far Side that is Hell's Video Store. And it's a devil 
uh, looking at, at a video, and all of the videos in the video store, including the one he's holding, are Ishtar. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that strip. And I asked my dad what Ishtar was, and he was like, oh, it's just this movie that was really bad that everybody hated. <laughs> See, yeah, uh, that that's basically it, right? The first time I really, I mean, besides that, I remember that comic strip. Um, and I remember I learned more about Ishtar when Waterworld came out because they were calling it Fishtar. Right, And that's when I started to understand what Ishtar was and what was it about. And it's so crazy because I'd like to think I like to chat. Like now that I'm older, I challenge the preconceived notions of a lot of things. And I try to go into it open and allowing myself the thing to be the thing. And then my interpretation of that thing. And younger, I literally just put my head down, braid like a sheep, and just said, yeah, Ishtar, I'm not going to watch that. It's junk. And it's such a it's such a poor way to go through life. <laughs> well, it is, it is uh, always a pleasant surprise to watch a movie that um, <clears throat> you kind of dismissed and uh, find out it's not not quite as terrible as, as everybody made it out to be. Um, the, the follow-up to the Far Side story... I don't know if you read this uh, in your in your um, travels this week, but Gary Larson later watched Ishtar. He had never seen it oh, when man. he made the cartoon, That's awesome. and he watched it. Uh, I think it was like on a plane or something, and he uh, ended up liking it. And he said that uh, he had never wanted to, uh, or there were there were a few times that uh, that he had wanted to write an apology for one of the cartoons that he had written, but he had never come as close as this to, to writing an actual apology note to, uh, to the makers of Ishtar because he felt bad for, uh, for slagging on the movie that he hadn't even seen. You know, I think good. I'm glad I'm as cool as Gary Larson. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I watched this movie, um, this, this movie used to play on HBO every now and then. Yes. Um, they would put it into rotation and I watched it, um, a, a, um, I was probably like 15 or 16 or something. I was like, I gotta see Ishtar. This is going to be hilarious because it's not so in the bad. way that they intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I remember being like, uh, I don't really like, this just seems like a normal eighties comedy. I don't really get the full like thing about this. Um, like it wasn't like Showgirls where it was like so over the top that it was amazing, yep. and it wasn't like Glitter where it was like, this is just boring and I want to kill myself. Or Waterworld was kind of like that a little bit too. Although Waterworld, honestly, again, is really not so bad. It's no. just kind of not good. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just so. It yeah, it it has so many repetitive things that have been done in so many other movies, except on water. It's just meh. <laughs> <laughs> and he drinks his own pee, yeah. which, you know, I, we don't need to see that. No, no one needs to see the gill man drink his pee. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler for Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, then I just kind of forgot about it and, and went on with my life. But, um, re you know, recently with, with all of this Elaine May um, revitalization and reconsideration of her films... Um, it's been most interesting to see people talk about Ishtar because it has this reputation 
Um, it didn't necessarily, it's, it's a funny situation because it didn't necessarily kill her career, um, because she didn't really have a career as a director, uh, until Warren Beatty basically, uh, coaxed her into directing another movie. Um, but it definitely put the final nail in the coffin in terms of her not being interested in ever going back to directing another movie yeah after um, after having the one-two punch of both her first movie and uh mikey and nikki being torn away from her hands uh i'm sure she had no intentions and you know, i'm sure you know warren <clears throat> excuse me warren Beatty had good intentions after working with her for a couple of writing projects and a couple of movies that he was in and having to write them that he was like you know we got to get you back behind the camera and this is going to be amazing and this is going to be great and you know and as usual the road uh you know good intent uh the road, the road to, to ishtar is yeah. is paved with good intentions <laughs> thank you for finishing that thought that's great <laughs> yeah exactly um, and i think that's yeah. exactly what happened you know because all reports state that uh you know he tried to help out in his warren Beatty way and i think it just made situ exacerbated a lot of the situations and made things worse um which is a shame yeah well, and I think, you know, I watched Heaven Can Wait uh, this week, which we can talk about a little bit um, on the next episode, uh, which she was nominated along with Warren Beatty for an Oscar for that screenplay. Um, and uh, she also helped out enormously on the post-production for Reds, which was a big part of where he, um, which he also um, got nominated for Oscars for. Yeah, that was, a, that was a big one. And uh, yeah, he was very clear. Her contribution was very much a, a huge part of that success for sure. And she also contributed, of course, to the writing of Tootsie, which uh, was Dustin Hoffman's big comedic performance uh, of the 80s as well. So both of these guys had a lot of um, built up um, uh she had a lot of built up cachet with them because she had given, uh, she had given them these, these major things in their career. Um, but you look at, at heaven can wait and it, it's very much a Warren Beatty vehicle mm -hmm. and it feels like a Warren Beatty movie. And I do wonder if the process, um, and we'll talk about the kind of reversal of roles here for the two leads. Um, but I, I do wonder if, if, putting Warren Beatty in this character put him back on his heels a little bit and made the the production process a little bit more uncomfortable for him and that and that ended up bleeding into the um the behind the scenes uh interactions but um it seemed like at every turn there was some sort of uh friction like everything yeah. every, like Dustin Hoffman, there was friction in terms of him not, uh, A, wanting to be in the movie to start with, and then kind of doing Warren Beatty a favor, and they kind of, you know, started joking around and realizing that this could work, and so I'm sure he was coming in with notes all the time, and Elaine May was, you know, listening probably, but still pushing her vision. She had all kinds of friction with Vittorio Storaro. I mean, you got Storaro yeah. coming in off of all these, you know, he was building a name for himself in the United States at this point, but he's had some pretty huge successes uh, as a cinematographer, and he doesn't know how to film a comedy, 
and she's trying to get him to film a comedy, and he's trying to film an epic desert adventure film, and uh, it's just, you can see that there is a lot of friction and uh, tension uh, between what one person wants to shoot and what the director wants to shoot. I've seen that firsthand many a times on set, where I've seen a cinematographer trying to build something beautiful that helps tell the story, or most of the time building their reel, while the director's like over at the other side of the set saying, I said the camera goes over here, over here. And, you know, just tension and everyone waiting for that to be solved. And so I can only imagine how hard that must have been for, you know, for everyone, because it slows everything down. And Yeah, and I think that they probably made a mistake shooting the Morocco portions of the movie first. Um, yeah. Because that was definitely the place where she was going to be less comfortable because she had never made a movie like that before. Um, and it sounds like they scaled down a lot of the action content that they had planned um, for that section, um, which doesn't necessarily show in the finished product. No. I don't think, which we, well, I think we should probably uh, yeah, wanna... talk about that finished product. What, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of, of Ishtar Elaine May's Ishtar? Um, <laughs> I was laughing out loud for quite a few moments in this movie. Um, I do think it's uneven. There is some some stuff going on that could have been tightened up, or or uh, or you know, uh, just thematically could have been drawn a little closer together. Um, you can feel the push and pull between uh, the studio Elaine May and Warren Beatty, kind of in terms of what the final vision would be, but. I really did like this movie. I was pleasantly surprised. I laughed. I thought the characterization, the characters that Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty came up with were hysterical. They're so... And because they're such, like, amazing actors to begin with, that to write off their performances as poor or bad or not... Like, not under... Like, it's... That's ludicrous. Like Warren Beatty is giving like one of my favorite performances of his of all times because he's not being Warren Beatty. He's being someone else and he's so uncomfortable, which his character is uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable in this role <laughs> and, yeah. and it all works out so well. And Dustin Hoffman, who's always playing a little guy trying to be big. Now he's a big guy that keeps on getting cut down to size. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a beautiful casting I mean, uh, I know it was all kind of, uh, these are my two friends and we'll make this work together. And Warren Beatty kind of grabbed Dustin Hoffman and said, we got to do this picture together. And, uh, but it works, it works on so many levels with just those two actors. So I liked it way more than I thought I would. And it, I, I, yeah, I can I'll gush over it as we go through, but, uh, what'd you think? What'd you think on this return viewing? I really liked it too. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I think that uh, there's definitely a, a depth here to what she's talking about, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I don't think that that depth is as complex or interesting as the themes that she explored in her first three movies. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, this is a more straightforward Hollywood movie. Um, and I, I think it's harder to see the Elaine Mayness of it all, uh, 
with a few exceptions, I think, um, the songs being, I think the biggest exception to that, but I think, um, overall it's much more, um, precise and, uh, clever than the average version of that movie was in the eighties and still is, uh, typically. And so, even though I don't think it necessarily transcends, it's just kind of like dumb buddy comedy, mistaken identity, um, DNA. I think it's one of the better versions of that movie that I've seen. And, uh, I was definitely laughing through this movie and, um, cringing and, uh, cringes. Yeah, I mean, there were the, there is a couple sections of this movie where I had a hard time even looking at the screen because I was so embarrassed for them. Um, but it was really funny. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think this movie clearly works. Um, and even though I don't think... I think because it's it's mostly cringe comedy, for the most part, it's people who are stupid acting in stupid ways. Um I can totally understand why some people wouldn't like it, but I have a very hard time watching this movie and thinking that it could have generated the kind of, of kind of notorious backlash that it generated, um, is very odd to me. Um, because it it is, it's just a, a dumb comedy. Like I look at a movie like Napoleon dynamite, which is terrible. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because that movie came out of nowhere. So everybody had a little bit of like a rah-rah cheering behind it. It wasn't a $50 million movie starring two of the most famous actors of that time. But like, who cares what the story is behind a movie? Like, it's just a, a dumb comedy, like laugh along with it and like be, you know, I think greeting things like this on their level is really important. And this movie works for me very much on its, on its own level. And I think this is a, uh, like, I think this is a product of the old studio way where you sell the back, you sell the backstory of the movie while the store, while the movie is also being sold. And so, you know, you have those stories. It's like, Oh, this movie was, is about this character and this stuff, but behind the scenes, this actor was also going through these real life struggles, and it's it's yeah. kind of like that, but it's the opposite. It was the this movie sucks; it's going to tank because of all this stuff going on on set, which therefore turned the critics against it. Which I think I'm trying to remember who said. Uh, oh man, there's a there was an article in, in I think in the New Yorker where it's talking about uh, how. Uh, when critics are basing their criticisms on the budget. Yeah. Richard Brody. Yeah. Yeah, There's a special place in hell for critics who worried about the budget of this film or the budgets of all these, of any film. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's not what we're, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that's, that's a perfect example of this. People were more concerned about what was going on behind the scenes and let it completely mar their view. And I think the other thing is, which I think is the bigger mistake is that everyone underestimated Elaine May and chalked it up to she has no idea what she's doing. So many of the critical responses to this um, are based on just 
the critics making up their own kind of stories about what's going on. Like, I think who is it? Uh, even even at the f- like a uh, thirty year anniversary of the film, I'm reading uh, an article in the Guardian, and like one of the first sentences, the film's problems begin and end with the heinously miscast central duo of Beatty and Hoffman. Now, they're not miscast. I think they're perfectly cast. They're playing against type, and I think at the time that the movie was released, they're playing so far against their type that people couldn't accept them for who they are. You know, yeah. it's you could you couldn't accept these characters because it's too much. It's too big of a leap to have Warren Beatty playing someone who can't get laid. You know, when he's built his whole career on being the guy who's constantly right. getting laid, and there's he can't even help it. Like he trips and falls and lands into sex, and that's just how it is. And and Dustin Hoffman playing all these really like uh, damaged or fragile, like these people that are have these big dreams and big ideas, but he doesn't have the abilities. And then he has this character where he doesn't have like it's it's so strange that people were so against the casting of this movie. Um, because they didn't get to see their actors the way they wanted to see them, which is which is funny. It's a uh, it's a really well. And what's funnier than a guy who you know is like the hottest guy in show business playing a guy who can't get laid? I, like, why is that not? How like, is that not hysterical? Completely, completely obvious. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is where they're walking down the street and Warren Bay's talking about how he like Dustin Hoffman can never understand what it's like to be him because he doesn't have women falling all over him. Like he says, he talks about how Dustin Hoffman is so compact and he's like, he's like, you've never seen a big sports car. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's great. That's yeah. It's, it's such a, uh, it's, it's funny because yeah, you don't see him ever not having confidence. Every role you watch Warren Beatty in, he's, either has bravado or confidence in himself. There's never usually moments of doubt. And this whole movie is him just complete and total doubt of himself, except in this one thing, that he believes he writes awesome songs. Like, that's the only thing he has any faith in himself. Okay, so for people who haven't seen the movie Ishtar, <laughs> I would hope you'd be watch- you wouldn't be listening to this podcast and then go watch the movie. I hope you would watch the movie and then talk about it. But for those, this was always my problem in book reports. By the way, when I was a you know, kid, like I was right like, why it. would you, why would you do a summary of the book? Like, you've read this book. I've read this book. Let's just get Let's into just it. Let's just get right into it. So, for those <laughs> who haven't seen the movie and are going to be like, "Nah, I'm going to reserve my judgment on whether I'm going to see it based on Matt and Travis's opinions," which you should never, never do that. because yeah. you know. We're Travis and Matt. We don't know what we're talking about sometimes, but most of the times we do our research and we like movies. But anyway, you should go see this movie and you should watch it. There's a really cheap Blu-ray of it, and um, I'm sure it'll be easy to find. And she's getting a lot of praise and retrospectives all around the country right now. So chances are you could probably even see Ishtar in cinemas at some point soon. But anyway, this is the story of Lyle Rogers and Chuck Clark played by Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, two guys who have given up all their everything that they've had, including their loves of their lives or their girlfriends or their wives, to pursue this career of being singer-songwriters in the vein of uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, and, you know, they give everything they can to it. 
and the beginning of the film is a lot of their process work on how they're building their songs and building their career and getting this stuff and trying to find an agent and you see them perform finally and you just know they are horrible they're not going to do that there's they shouldn't be doing this this is not for them <laughs> and it is so awkwardly and hilariously clear that this is not for them um i when Warren Beatty belts out this one line, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. It is so cringy and awkward when they start singing. The outfits they're wearing, oh my god. <laughs> I can't even begin to describe it. So then we And they're they're and these both of these guys are like thirty five at this point. So it's not like that like they are it's not like they're these young guys who just got out of school oh, no. and they're ready to like have a music career. They're, like, they're deep yeah. into needing to get on with their lives. Yeah, they they should be settled by now and instead, um, you know, they're you know, they're moving right along and, and trying to start over in this new way. And uh so it leads them to some desperate acts which include uh taking a booking uh they have the choice of going to uh was it nicaragua honduras. honduras they have the choice of going to honduras or to ishtar just stay just don't go off the yeah, highway just don't go off the highway it'll be fine there or you go to morocco to ishtar and uh, you can perform for more money but you have to get yourself to the canary islands because that's where i have a ticket booked out <laughs> which is just great and so uh, they go, and it becomes, and the movie shifts its tone a bit and becomes more of a kind of like a uh, misadventure. Um, they both, they get, you know, sucked up into some political intrigue uh, between the, uh, the uh, CIA and the, uh, the local uh, freedom fighters, and um, they start playing off each other. There's a lot of distrust between them, and, uh, you know, a red herring here and a uh, a MacGuffin there and uh you know all leading towards this fantastic uh live performance for a uh, a captive audience um and it's uh and it works uh <laughs> all the pieces work uh there's so many funny uh just really subtle moments there's moments of them looking at each other which i was just cracking up because you could see the other one trying to see if the other one is lying or not. And it's so telegraphed in their faces. Like, there's so many levels of comedy going on in this movie that I appreciate it on so many levels. But I was I was laughing out loud many times. Charles Grodin's in the film uh, also as the, C as the CIA contact. And as usual, he brings his amazing, uh, amazing acting abilities to his role. Um... He has no jokes in this movie, and he is None. so funny. He is the straight man, deadpan. I think my favorite line is when he <laughs> approaches the uh, prince or the, the the king of Ishtar, and he's saying, uh, he's saying two of your guys came in and tried to kill two Americans. And he's like, oh, which guys? He goes, I don't know. They're your guys. <laughs> and he's like, no, which Americans? <laughs> Dude, that is just ridiculous. He's trying to describe which guys were the shooters, but it's so crazy because I like. I know we both after we watch the movies, we start doing a bunch of research because that's something we like to do. And I was reading the uh, Washington Post, nineteen eighty seven. Hal Hinson did his review on Ishtar, and he says he's he's 
He totally shits all over Elaine May. He says she doesn't know what she's doing, constantly in the article. But the one of the things he says is, given her tastes, it's not surprising that May is most engaged when working with the mo movie's mangiest critters. The Camels, The Vultures, Charles Grodin. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> That's so horrible. Um so uh it's it's so weird. Like I don't like it's like this movie was just destined to fail because people just weren't giving it a chance, weren't giving Elaine May the chance she deserved. And um I think our audience should give this movie the chance it deserved and it didn't get in nineteen eighty seven because it is it is really funny and I agree. It is. It does have very Hollywood style, just kind of story structure of what it's going for. But you know, it was very specific what Elaine May was setting out to do. And I think you were you were talking to me about that. You watched a couple of the Hope and Crosby movies to kind of compare it to uh, the structure of this film. Yeah, I watched Road to Morocco um, because uh, this was specifically. Um, intended as a semi riff on the road movies uh, and road to Morocco specifically. And in fact, um, Elaine may originally was going to call it, uh, the road to Ishtar. Um, and Warren Beatty didn't want to do that because he didn't want to be compared to hope and Crosby. Yeah. Um, which is funny cause that's exactly what they should be compared to in this, in the context of the film. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and and they clearly intended to switch positions. And I don't know if if there was ever a time when they had cast them in the opposite, and then they decided it would be funnier if they would uh, change roles. Um, that happened on um, Pineapple Express, which I think is actually a pretty comparable movie to this in terms of mm. what it sets out to do, and the fact that the two leads are playing against type, uh, at least at that point in their careers. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I watched, uh, I watched road to Morocco and, uh, it's not for me. Uh, I do not like those movies. I had seen a number of, of them, um, previously when I was younger, they were just on TV, uh, AMC or yeah. whatever. Um, but I hadn't seen them in a really long time, and so I thought I'd give this one a try. Um, basically, the way the movies work um, is that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope are uh, two two lovable scallywags, uh, and they just kind of um, putz around and um, sing songs and crack jokes, uh, many of which are meta commentaries on the fact that they're... Um, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope making a movie. Um, and each, each, uh, of the movies is kind of a parody of a different kind of Hollywood genre or, uh, uh, blueprint for a, a style of film. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's like a, it, each one is like 70 or 80 minutes. So you're not, um, ruining your day or anything, and, but aren't they also like horn dogs always like, like they, yeah, Bing Crosby's very much. getting all the girls yeah. and Bob Hope's moaning that he isn't. Exactly, which is, yeah, exactly why they, they kind of pulled that into this movie. And, and uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. But I think, um, you know, I think they just really come off as super white 
and it feels a lot like a movie where they were in the studio office and they were like, what if the Marx brothers weren't so Jewy? (laughs) And that was like the whole pitch for the, for the series. And like, I I mean, I, to me, it's the, nothing in it is original or funny. It's very bland middle of the road. It feels a little bit like CBS, uh, like like a hit the hit hit CBS sitcom of the nineteen forties. Um, <laughs> whoa 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 speed. Yeah yeah exactly. So I mean they, and it's it's just like they, yeah they stay they're like riding a camel and then all of a sudden they're singing this really bland like white song and it's not for me anyway. But I th- <laughs> um, if if people like Hope and Crosby enjoy knock yourselves out. Um, but I think that that horn dog aspect of it really did carry over into this movie because I think the one place where, or at least one of the places where you really get a lot a lot of Elaine May here is just how completely terrible they are with Isabella Johnny all the time in this movie. <laughs> like they're always hitting on her, and she's this person who's like her her brother was just murdered. She's trying to like you know, free her people from this, uh, corrupt, uh, dictator. Yeah. Yeah, The head that's, that's being, um, propped up by the CIA. Plus she's, Uh, plus she's dealing with the fact that the people within her own group are not trusting her and undercutting her decision-making in the, like, she's being cut out of everything at all times. And at the same time, the only two people that could help her are just like, either trying to touch her breasts or uh, being jealous of the fact that one is getting favor over the other one. Yeah. Which... The scene where she like finally breaks down and she's like talking, talking to oh, Dustin yeah. Hoffman and starting to cry. And Dustin Hoffman is just straight up hitting on her <laughs> is like borderline as awkward as the like sex scene in Mikey and Nikki. Oh. I mean, it's just like so dark and like i can't even believe like how just and and like it it just feels very like as a man watching that scene it just feels very like it's too close to home it does (laughs) and if you think about think about how many like golden age hollywood movies there's the scene where the girl is crying on the shoulder of the guy and then he lifts her chin up and they start making out and it's implied they have sex and it's always that sense of a guy, you know, it's supposed to be romantic that he's 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 being there for her and then she is rewarded by being sensitive or something. But really, it's just I'm taking advantage of a girl at her weakest moment because then all of her guard is down and I can uh, I can make my move. I can slide into her DMs and not worry about being rejected. Um, and that's basically like what he's trying to do. But she's just like, nah, it's a, uh, you know, it is. It's so... It's so skeevy, but at the same time, you you by this point in the movie, you know how pathetic he is, so oh, yeah. you know that this is not going to go anywhere. And, but it happens all the, like it happens through the whole movie. Oh. Like he's like after they do this terrible sing along performance of all of these like generic <laughs> songs, and it it's like these it's like these tourists who are all like these couples that are in their fifties. 40s and 50s and like they end and he's like on this high of like how great they were and he's like we can have any woman in this place (laughs) just like 
He's so oh so skeezy much. Oh, and delusional. <laughs> completely, absolutely, com- like, and he had like that's one of the things I think uh, a lot of like a lot of the tonal shift between the first part of the film and the second part of the film. I think without that long first part of the film where you really get to know these two characters and their stories, which is a lot of the complaints I read in in, in uh, critics' reviews about how uh, you know we're going back and forth in time so much and it's leapfrogging around. And I think without that section there, you have no sympathy or feeling for them in the second half, which you need yeah. all of that. If you don't have that beginning section you don't have any sort of care for these characters in the world. And so when they would do that stuff, it would just be like downright mean and you wouldn't like them at all. But because you've seen how just absolutely pathetic they are, that when they start getting into this adventure and you see them rise a little bit here and there, you're kind of like, okay, this is working out. But at the same time, you know, there's still just these two pathetic dudes who are not going to be very good at their dreams and, and no one has, you know, they had girlfriends. One had a wife, the other one had a girlfriend and Dustin Hoffman's character, he was, he was basically telling her like, you know, she loves him and he's like, well, let's just, you know, let's see, let, let, let's see who, how do we know we're right for each other? Let's just, uh, <laughs> so he's trying to play the field when he had this girlfriend that was uh, very much truly in love with him. Right. Cause he's going to be a rock star. Oh, he's going to be huge. Uh, the other one is I love Warren Beatty's introduction in which he's uh, composing a song set to the jingle of his ice cream truck that he drives and ignoring all the kids in the street who are waving <laughs> him down to get ice cream. They're running along the sidewalk Just trying to wave him down. So so angry at him that he's not stopping because he's so lost in his thoughts about his song. Well, I think, I think your point uh, about the New York section of the movie is an interesting one because... The road to Morocco starts with them on a raft. So they are completely um, not established as characters in any way. And it's very clear, as I mentioned, there's tons of meta jokes in yeah. the movie. It's very clear that it's just Bob Hope and, and Bing Crosby. Yeah, you, there's don't, no... you don't need a backstory. They're, yeah, they're exactly. But, it, but also what happens then is that... The, you're really just the movie is surviving on a joke to joke to song to joke basis Mm -hmm. where if the jokes aren't working, there's nothing that is going to carry you through to the next moment because you you're, you know, you're not even watching a real movie. It's just these two actors on a set doing whatever it is that they do. Um, And that this movie never feels that way. It doesn't feel like a string of jokes put together. Um, and you know, I think that's one of the ways in which I think this movie is a good example of, uh, someone like Elaine May who has a particular kind of talent and, um, interest and is not especially concerned with like she can try to make a movie like this, the mistaken identity, wacky eighties comedy, action movie but she just ends up making an elaine may movie anyway um because there's very few movies like this i think that have characters uh of this sort that are as that feel as real and have as much depth uh as 
these two guys do yeah. because like typically you know you think about a movie like bill murray and the man who knew too little which or, is kind of a similar yeah, concept Ackroyd and chase and spies like us which is very similarly yeah uh, right know, fashioned i mean it, what's crazy i actually had to look it up to see if one followed the other and actually spies like us came out two years before this movie but i think this movie had tons of editing issues which postponed mm. the actual release of it yeah. for a while so um no i think that's a good point like the uh getting i think that's where elaine may's strong suit is she's taking uh weak characters that are either morally morally askew or just uh just delusional. unlikable delusional <laughs> and she's and she's she's giving them pathos like you you feel for them because you understand where they're coming from through the course of the the work that she's doing so of course you know you're gonna get to know these characters a lot more than a typical 80s movie because a typical 80s movie would have just you you probably would have started at their first concert and then then gone you know find out the girlfriends left them they're crying you know then they're offered this chance to go on an adventure and then the movie starts like you wouldn't have spent an hour in New York, right. like working through all this stuff, which I think is where that bloated running time that everyone talks about is, is that it's too long in the beginning and then not enough happens towards the second half, which I, I disagree with. I think that beginning is, is what is needed to be able to make the second half work at all. I mean, there's kind of set pieces in the back end of the movie, but I mean, the auction is probably the one that I think is the most typical in terms of this kind of yeah. movie. Um, Dustin Hoffman pretends to be an auctioneer auctioning off guns. And that that's one of the the scenes where I had a really hard time looking at the screen. It's also a little racist. Yeah, but... him speaking in a fake language. Yeah. I, 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 and, and the fact that, you know, these are... You, you would not make that today. No, and these arm dealers are not... They, they shouldn't be that stupid to not speak <laughs> yeah. even a little bit of the language or come with their own interpreter. But I will say I did chuckle when finally Warren Beatty catches on to what's going on. Because he, he always, my favorite aspect of his character is he takes him a beat to realize what's going on every time. And even though most of the time he still doesn't know what's really going on, but it just takes him always one beat to process which I think is absolutely <laughs> great. So when Warren, when Dustin Hoffman is like speaking this fake language, and you see all the other tribesmen starting to wander away from this arms dealing, and Dustin and Warren Beatty just kind of just what he's they've been doing this whole time when they're writing songs together, he just repeats back what he hears Dustin Hoffman say, <laughs> which starts the uh, which starts right. the process of people getting interested again because they think he's speaking a language. I did enjoy that part of it, but yeah, that whole scene could easily have just been excised. It, it felt too easy to uh, well, we have to give them guns somehow. Yeah, so yeah. This is well, what and, we're gonna and, do. but that really is the only only set piece like that. And a lot of the other moments that I think that I think in the hands of other people would have been uh, blown up a little bit more are kind of done in shorter smarter ways like the blind camel that yeah. that whole section is really funny and uh warren Beatty is really funny in it um where he's just like 
I think I've made a mistake, and now I own a blind camel. <laughs> well, just, and, just the the fact that he's there, and he's he asks for Mohammed, and yeah. this guy's <laughs> answer goes, "Oh, look at me hitting it out of the park on the first try!" Like he's so <laughs> proud of himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that whole section probably would have been five or ten minutes longer with somebody else. I think there probably also would have been a lot more kind of. Um, twists and turns in that back half and and basically what's happened is that she's taken all of that typical uh fat that you have in the second and third act of a movie like this and she's moved that running time into the first act to give these guys some sort of backstory and make them into more realistic characters and i appreciate that i think that it doesn't make for a as popular of a movie because there's no crazy action or wacky set pieces in the back end um, which is what people go to these types of movies to see typically but i think it it makes for a better movie and i think it makes the comedy more in uh durable yeah because the action the action and the all the motivations come from the characters as opposed to the the plot which i think is great because no matter what's going because these guys are just being carried along by two different forces that are opposing each other throughout the whole picture they're not like they're not making decisions and the only time they finally do make a decision all they ask for is for them to get a live recorded album and <laughs> put out. that's the only decision like go to morocco and you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna help out and we're gonna get a, a live re- you know a studio recording and we're gonna be millionaires. Um, so it's it's interesting because it is all of her. She's grounded her characters into uh, making emotional decisions. And as usual, you know she's she's emotionally stunted the ma- the male characters and set them into this you know period of you know just just kind of like in uh, Mikey and Nikki and also in A New Leaf, uh, and even to some degree Charles Grodin's character in The Heartbreak Kid, they're, they're emotionally stunted to a age level that is much younger than what they appear on screen, which is you know goes to their horndog attitude, uh, always yeah. wanting to get with, you know, it, 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 all their decisions are based on those types of ideas. I mean, it's honestly, they're two guys that are, want to start a rock band. And now in their 40s, they're doing covers and traveling in the local bar circuit, playing their favorite 80s tunes. It's not much further away from that than what they're what these two guys are doing, except they're writing their own music. And it's just very good. Yeah, let's talk about the music. Oh, uh, my God. Because I, I think it's actually interesting. I haven't seen the new Star is Born but I was talking to somebody uh, about the uh, they they felt that the the songs that Lady Gaga sings as a pop star are too good for what they want it to do in the movie. So in other words, like they didn't write bad enough pop songs for the plot. Uh. And I was thinking about how like. It's very hard in the same way that it's very hard to um, to for a good for an actor to act poorly, like to pretend that they are a bad actor um, in a movie. Yeah, uh, 
I think it's very hard to write a bad song on purpose. I I would have to agree with you. It's like and when you watch those movies. Nail where, it here. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say it's like when you watch a movie in which people are trying to make a movie and make it bad, so it looks like it's not good. You see right. that it's still it's so it's so over the top bad that you can't exactly. You know. But uh, yeah, Paul Williams. Paul Williams and Elaine May were writing all these songs, and uh, according to a couple of interviews I read, Paul Williams had the most amazing time writing this music because it was so fun to just write bad music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the thing is, like, it's not, none of it's good, but it's also like you can totally see how somebody could believe that it was good yes. or clever, you know? Because cause there are, like, could be clever but it's not really there's like <laughs> exactly. too many cliches yeah. that should work but don't and you know put that together with well, because, poor yeah, instrumentation because, <laughs> because if you admit you could play the accordion no one would hire no you for a rock, you and, in a rock and roll band <laughs> yeah, that's just true it's, it's totally just true. that's one of the just cold hard facts <laughs> Well, that's what's so great about it is like, yeah, it is very poorly done. And like, if for those who don't know who Paul Williams is, he's an amazing songwriter. Uh, he wrote all the songs from the Muppet movie, which is probably where I know him best because I just love the soundtrack to that movie. Um, but he's a very accomplished uh, songwriter. And so the fact that he just had a ball and Elaine May didn't just like say, Hey, write a couple lines of like five or six different songs that we can do. He wrote entire songs and Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, like they took a month off from when they got back. From <laughs> yeah, they learned how to play to them learn all. how to play these songs and memorize them and play them with <laughs> feeling, I would say, but it's not feeling because uh, all their feeling, all of Warren Beatty's feelings are super, super repressed when he sings. You expect them to belt out, and Warren Beatty pulls in so much. It is amazing watching him sing. I was dying. I was dying. Like, I thought him rapping in Bullworth was the most awkward thing I've seen him do. And then I saw this movie, and I was yeah. just like, this is the best thing I've ever seen by him do. It was absolutely stunning. Like, there is a level of self-consciousness that he has to achieve to be that uh, just restricted in all of his things and to be that bad like i yeah. think that's the other thing a lot of people thought that they're just putting on a bad performance but they're not they're putting on an amazing performance because it must be so hard to be that bad which is what we're talking about with that with the music and their the characterization and the instrumentation that's the other thing you see them playing at a piano when they're coming up with the lyrics to the song in which they go back and forth and you see them working on this music together and then when they play it, it's like <laughs> it's like a drum machine and a tambourine, and it is so poorly, like it's just so poorly constructed that it just it's just it's it's laugh out loud funny because it's not like you expect it to be better than it is when they get up on stage because that's right. what you've been trained to do as a film goer. That when you know, like you said, Napoleon Dynamite. You see him doing little things, and then you see his final dance performance, and everyone's blown away. <laughs> it's like that. You expect to see them practice and practice and practice, then get up on that stage and kill it. 
And it is it could be further from the truth. Oh my god, it is so funny. And I'm not the biggest fan of either one of these guys, especially as comedians. No. Like I've never found um Dustin Hoffman to be that funny. I'm not a big fan of Tootsie. I don't I just uh, he's never really impressed me as a comedian, but his on-stage performances in particular in this movie are so funny and I think the the biggest laugh I had is the scene where they're singing together and Dustin Hoffman has a microphone and he kind of like like tilts it over towards Warren Beatty and Warren Beatty thinks that he wants him to sing part like on his microphone he leans over and Dustin Hoffman just drops the microphone as Warren Beatty leans over and brings it back it's the funniest thing and oh it's so God. it's so it feels so natural oh, in it's... its awkwardness that it it really um it it really is so perfect for these characters and uh and it's just yeah it's it's I, really really funny I have no idea how like the amount of takes it must have taken yeah. to be able to be that effortlessly clumsy. Cause most of the times you see clumsy and you can see how, how much effort it went into doing that pratfall or tripping on something. And when they're on stage, they are so graceless. Yeah. I mean, the, the, oh the, that's, that is the thing ultimately, right? I mean, that these, these movies that, this is the second director in a row that we have ha- have covered who is notorious for ta- doing take after take after take and you really do see the benefit of that i mean there's a lot of nuance in the performances of in this movie that make the lines funnier that i think only come from either an an enormous amount of rehearsal or uh a lot of takes because they have a certain twitch or they um, give, give each other a certain thrown away look, the things around the line or even just the delivery of the line, the way that it's delivered is unexpected. If you had read those lines on a page, they wouldn't be delivered. You wouldn't think that they would be delivered that way. And I think all of that stuff comes out of this process of just hammering the material until it's good enough to to really work. And I think that's where I agree with you. I'm not I'm not huge fans of either of those actors. I think uh, Dustin Hoffman is at his best when he's play, being the, a character actor in a film, like mm-hmm. when he's he's devolving himself into a really kind of like smaller role like a supporting character like i think uh his his role in uh papillon is an amazing small performance and i think like same with midnight cowboy he's he's not a leading man and they've made him a leading man yeah Um, which i think you know only in the 70s would he be a leading man and say and warren Beatty, you know he is a lot of eye candy but you know uh emotionally nuanced performances i haven't you know i can't point to any that really struck me you know i've enjoyed him but when i think of it when i think of something like reds the thing that i remember the most about it is everyone else's performances besides his you know jack nicholson and uh you know just every everyone else around him is usually the thing i remember the most i remember uh uh 
I remember uh, Julie Christie's performance and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller more and more than I remember yeah. his. Yeah. Um, so he's always there because he's always he always feels like he's playing the same character, kind of like watching Robert Redford. He has the same kind of uh, continually being the same type of character who's always handsome and winning at something yeah. until he got older, and then now he's just handsome older Robert Redford, <laughs> handsome and winning at things. Um, so to see him be so so reduced is such a fantastic thing. Like I, I really, this is the first time I my ears pricked up and I understood that he does have talent and ability to be um, something better than kind of what he constantly put himself out as, which is the male sex symbol for years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think, uh, I think those two are two that I wouldn't expect this from. So to see them playing these characters makes it so much more fulfilling. And because of the amount of process that Elaine May goes through with them and them being experienced seasoned actors at this point, they could really kind of, just like watching uh, <clears throat> in Mikey and Nikki, watching the two uh, Peter Falk and John Cassavetes uh, go through their their numbers because they're doing they're working within the realm of what they work best as and with this kind of improvisational uh, moments. So with such a tight script that they're able to bring so much more nuance and care to their characters to really flesh them out uh, more. I think. Beatty and Hoffman were given the same leeway to really kind of mine their characters for little moments. And that's the stuff that, you know, we were talking about really appreciate those little, those little moments that are just absolutely hilarious when you're watching them, the little foibles and the little looks and the, the fact that, you know, Dustin Hoffman is constantly like trying to impress people with this look of his, which is with that, uh, horrible 80s tie that he wears as a headband uh, to the point where he wears it outside <laughs> of his headscarf as well <laughs> which is just a great little beautiful touch um, yeah there's so many great moments in this movie uh, uh, you know from from those types of things to the camel scene which is absolutely great they're d- getting lost in the desert and the vultures coming after them uh, it just and coming up with a song as they're, as they're almost dying <laughs> of thirst. We should have a pencil. We should have a pencil. Yeah. Are you writing this down? Oh, see, we were so good. We don't need a pencil. We're remembering it. Oh, it's so it's great. It's absolutely yeah. great. And just how easily they're led astray by everyone else. Like they've known each other for at this point for six, seven months. They've been working together every day making songs. And the first person who cast doubt about the other one they're just completely flipped and they're like oh i don't trust them <laughs> which i think is absolutely hilarious when warren Beatty decides to try to be smooth and sneak out of the uh, hotel room to go to his <laughs> rendezvous and dustin hoffman is also trying to follow him and then the every other agency Literally. is trying to follow them <laughs> All of the people on the sidewalk and all of the cars. <laughs> Everyone. Oh, it's so well done. Because yeah. every like no one is competent at their jobs. And it's so good. Oh man. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of moments well, like that. That is one other thing that that uh, we should talk about is just because I, I the people have kind of recast this as sort of a Reagan era commentary on on, mm. you know, getting uh 
messed up in the Middle East. And, um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's eternal relevance, uh, even today. Um, do you feel like the movie works on that level? Um, and how much do you feel like you need that aspect of the movie in order for it to work overall? I think, I think on a surface level, it works for the story. I think, you know, at, at the time in the 80s, the idea of people going out to the Middle East, which was very considered dangerous because of the, you know, the reporting we're getting back at that point, um, <clears throat> I think makes it for an interesting plot point because we as the audience know that going to the Middle East is a stupid move as stupid as going to Honduras at that time. So it, it's, it's, it, it is a, it's an easy joke that can be made um, for the surface level. But I think because we know at this point enough about Elaine May that she doesn't just do easy jokes, um, that it would make sense that she would have some sort of thoughts or feelings about what was going on in that area at the time. Because she does paint the picture of uh, the U.S., and other agencies that are all trying to vie for the attention, uh, completely ignoring the people who need the help, and just bumbling and fumbling their way through what they think is the most important aspects of this, you know, this uh, mission, which is to protect their interests, which are aligned with basically the corrupt and dictator right. uh, character, which is true about a lot of the stuff the CIA has done. Uh, you know, protect the person that has the best interest for U.S. interests, which, you know, has gotten us into a lot of trouble now. And we all, you know, a lot of people go, what? why? Really? Why are they hating us? What did we do? And it's like, uh, everything. <laughs> um, so I think, yes, I, I, I think she is making a pointed commentary at the same time as telling this other story. Because if you were to subtract Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty from this film, it is a story about a woman trying to avenge her brother and restore justice to her area, uh, the place she lives, and to overthrow someone. You know, it is it is a very, uh, you know, Isabella and Johnny is playing a character that is very heartbroken and touching, and she's all business. She does, she's not, she, you know, she isn't like a lot of the, uh, if you watch a lot of these kind of like buddy comedies in which they pick up a foreign girl who has the intrigue and the stuff going on in which she starts to kind of come around to the humorous aspects of these two guys and enjoying them. She doesn't do that until the action is over. And it's only then where she sits down and she's listening to their performance. Right. And it's more of a, it's less of a, I appreciate those guys for who they are. It's I appreciate those guys because they helped me. And I love them because they, they're allowing me to be here without a headscarf watching this performance because we overthrew this dictator, which is, uh, it's, it, you know, it says something a lot different, but it, it kind of, I don't know, it, sometimes it felt like it, it had its cake and ate it too. Like it, it had both ways by having her win, but also still be enamored by them. But the way she's crying is not tears of like happiness for them for getting what they want it's more like tears of relief and joy that um she was successful in her mission and she can grieve for her brother and kind of know that he didn't die in vain 
which is a lot to get out of a comedy movie that, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think, do you feel the same way? Do you think it works in that level of uh, political uh, commentary? I think it's there, but I don't think that she goes too deep into it. I think it's kind of built into the concept of the movie. And so in, in that regard, it works, but I, you know, I don't think that it, the movie is necessarily saying anything interesting or original about that. Yeah. In that regard. I mean, I don't think that it has to, um, it's that it's not that kind of movie. Um, but I, I do, I was hoping, I think, just because of the kind of one of the aspects of the film's reputation that has been uh, talked about recently is the idea that it was kind of, it, it, it it's emblematic of its times and kind of speaks to a little bit of, of the geopolitical uh, happenings uh, around it. And it does in a way, but I don't think that there's necessarily a lot to take from the movie in that regard. No, it doesn't. It doesn't solve any problems, but it also doesn't hit you over the head with a solution either, which is yeah, which it easily could have. It could get preachy if someone yeah, but wanted it, it, to. Yeah, but it also doesn't cut too deep. I think you know. Yeah. I think it, it's a pretty, especially these days, just now that we really know kind of everything well i mean not all of us but mo- you know people who who are aware of the history of the cia the history of central and south america of the middle east of uh the eastern european countries like that you know the these things are could they could they could have gone a lot uh closer to the bone than they do here where it's a pretty it's it's not too far away from I think what a conventional uh, comedy like this would do um, with a CIA character um, and uh, and a revolutionary quote unquote. Um, I mean I think for me it works. Um, my bigger concern with Isabella Johnny's character is just that um, I feel like she doesn't really have a lot to do. Like we don't really learn much about her beyond the political context that we need to know for these characters and the introduction of the brother and the map is so corny and very like intentionally, like definitely intentionally um, stereotypical in terms of like being kind of like Indiana Jonesy or, I mean, there's so many eighties movies like golden child and stuff like that, where it's just like all that, like, mystical like archaeology nonsense that uh and even the way it's shot she did it very um to like in a cliche fashion um and i think that it works in that way where i was like okay i get it this is the kind of movie she's making fun of here but i think that hurts ultimately isabella johnny's character because there's not really any way to make her as fleshed out as the two guys are yeah and i think the other thing is that uh, about that tone she's setting with the finding of the map and stuff is she doesn't make fun of it it's played it's played straight 
like all that stuff is just straight up played straight. There's no yeah. ribbing it and like kind of like mining it for its absurdity because the characters, the two characters are what's absurd. And that's right. the thing. That's the, that's the main point. Like the map is the MacGuffin to kind of get them from here to there. And that's all it is. And that's, yeah. and that's fine. And I think, and I wonder, speaking of uh, a Johnny, um, I wonder if a lot of her character development hit the cutting room floor because Warren Beatty was forcing that down hit everyone's throat because that was his girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Um, I know Elaine May didn't want to cast her right away. Like, she she wasn't interested in her because that was one of Warren Beatty's kind of like, no, you got to cast yeah. my girlfriend kind of things. And it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Elaine May, who usually in like all the female characters like even though they might not have a lot of screen time or they're very well written for what little amount they have to do or say but you feel that they are real truly really like human people like you know when we talked about a new leaf and the staff and yeah. uh mikey mikey and nikki with uh you know the, the the few girls that we do get to meet in the story um this one, it does, she just feels like an afterthought, another MacGuffin to get them from here to there to cause problems. And, uh, you know, Charles Grodin is given more of a backstory yeah. in terms of just his persona and his gravitas and the way he holds himself. Uh, the joke with the camel being on his foot being one of, one of the nice ones that I liked a lot later, calling it back with an iced foot, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, and also, um, you know, it's a shame to waste Carol Kane the way the movie does, oh, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's really only in it for a few minutes, and she doesn't get to do much at all. Um, so, I mean, it, I think the female characters are one of the weaker parts of this movie. Um, and it is interesting just the fact that, you know, she, she made four movies and she wasn't uh planning to make four movies you know she kind of i'm sure she assumed she would have a longer career when she first started and then by this point she just kind of picked this movie that she was going to make but she made all four of these movies where the central characters are very much the male characters, not the female characters. And like you said, I think she did a really good job in her first three movies of um, fleshing out those female characters, making them into real human beings with their own thoughts and feelings and desires. God forbid, like I'm saying it like it's a shocking thing. Um, Like she should get an award for like actual (laughs) human females. Um, but, but I, I mean, it is rare in movies to do that, especially movies that where the central characters are not the women, where the, where the attention for the most part is being paid to the central male characters. It's rare to get that time and care put into the secondary characters in the movies. And, um, so for her to, to get this fourth opportunity and, and make, uh, movie like this as much as i really enjoy these two characters and and like watching them um you know it is it is a bit of a letdown to not see that aspect of her um strengths not only continued but brought to the 
to the forefront. Yep. No, I agree. And I wonder if, yeah. And I wonder if that's the, uh, that's part of working with those two actors. Yeah. Um, you know, they probably took a lot of the attention and a lot of the time and, and, uh, patience of Elaine May to work with them so much, um, that a lot of the characters probably fell way off to the sides. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that very much. Uh, how do you think it felt with her other themes that she's carried through her other movies? Was she successful in kind of... Do you see Elaine May's voice in this movie like uh, we clearly saw in the other... Uh, her first two films, specifically? Um, and not... I mean, there's moments in Mikey and Nikki, but... Uh, that one felt more of a Cassavetes, uh, Falk, like, you know, that that one felt more like them and less like Elaine May. Does this, is she more successful in this movie and getting her voice back through uh, the characters? I think that that um, sort of sexual ickiness is definitely a place, and I think that the kind of interactions between them, and like you said, the um, the arrested development of the central characters. Um, all of those things I think are really, um, indicative of the rest of her films. And, and so the tie them together, um, and those, those certain, I think it, I, I guess I think most of the, the things are in execution and sort of the sophistication of the jokes and of the way that they're delivered you see the technique of uh, her humor in the movie, not as much in the themes of the movie or what the movie is setting out to say or or talk about. Um, yeah. I think it's a pretty straightforward kind of 80s buddy comedy in that regard. It's just elevated by her execution. I agree. I think it's uh, it'd be like uh, looking back at some of the uh, how the uh, the French New Wave uh, writers were looking back at some of the studio directors who yeah. were able to peek through the movies, not all the time and not fully, but just enough that you can see some of their constant themes uh, emerging. I think it's the same thing here. I think uh, it's not fully her film. But the moments that shine the brightest for me are touches that I believe fully come from her. And that's the parts, I think that was, those are the parts that I like the most. The little type of jokes and the little asides and the things that, uh, the, the moments that she mines and the humanity that she draws from these pathetic characters are, are the, the things that I, I connect with the most and the things I like the most. And then... Yeah, I think the only thing we have left is to talk about that show-stopping final performance uh, <laughs> in front of what the Army has been asked as part of their conditions for releasing all the information and uh, and testifying and all that stuff. Uh, they uh, are promised a live recording with a captive audience, and that audience is all the, the Army who... Uh, <laughs> who their drill sergeant is walking through the crowd saying, applaud, clap, <laughs> which is, and they, and they don't, they don't care at all. They are they're not phased at all. They're um, loving it. They think they're having the best <laughs> night of their lives and everyone is truly enjoying what they are doing. Oh my goodness. And so the one thing, one thing I will ask you is just, 
um, you know, I, I looked up, uh, like I did on Kubrick, I looked up the, the number of ratings on IMDb and, um, this movie has, uh, more than twice as many as a new leaf, which is her, um, next most watched movie. Um, Elaine May famously said that, uh, if she, uh, if, if every person who hated Ishtar had actually seen the movie, she would be a rich woman. And I do wonder if a sub, a substantial number of those votes, uh, come from people who have never actually seen the movie. Um, and so I, I wondered if you think that the reputation of this movie is going to continue to improve if people will actually go out and see this movie um if it could become uh an 80s comedy that uh people watch a lot on the level of you know the big 80s comedies uh i i i think uh the only thing that could elevate this movie more is what's happening now and that's a retros retrospectives and uh the current climate in which uh women are finally getting a stronger voice or allowed to be or, you know men are stepping aside and allowing women to be able to be uh heard more clearly and taking more seriously um i think that is the thing that will shine a bright light on Elaine May because, you know, those statistics that you uh, talked about in the first episode, which, uh, you know, point, you know, two tenths of a 1% of, I think it was two tenths? Or is it? Yeah, I think, I think two so. Two tenths yeah. of 1% of the movies made from World War II to the time period you stated were made by women, uh, 14 films to be exact. Um, the fact that she was a American woman director in this time period, making her own movies with final cut, um, getting to push the actors to places, multiple takes until she achieved her vision, being able to, uh, work in that section that's a huge huge um you know thing to be able to put forward as uh something that needs to be put back into uh, film history books and to have a brighter light shined on and i think because of the time that we're in right now and uh, the moment that is happening uh the sea change that is hopefully taking place um, I really hope that people will give her another shot, which will allow this movie to ascend a lot better than the uh, the rating it is uh, given on most of the Metacritics at IMDb. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of people have seen that haven't seen this and just given it a one star review so yeah. they could laugh and because it's Ishtar. It's Ishtar, right. so you gotta you gotta shit on Ishtar, and you know and. I think it's unfairly maligned. I think this movie is better than most of the 80s comedies at the time. Not the greatest of all time, but I think it is very strong. And it did catch me by surprise and had me laughing quite a few times more than I probably would have said I would have laughed going into watching the film.
Yeah, just to name a Charles Grodin movie, like I'd rather watch this than Midnight Run, personally. I mean, uh-huh. it, the, the, it's a very enjoyable film, but um, I, I thought this was funnier than that. And I, as as I mentioned, I don't like Tootsie very much either, so yeah. I'd rather watch this than that. I mean, I one thing we should mention that I, I probably should have mentioned at the beginning of, of this episode uh, is that in between recording our Mikey and Nikki episode and uh, this episode... Criterion uh, announced that they are releasing Mikey and Nikki on Blu-ray, uh, which is a big deal. It's a 4K restoration supervised by Elaine May, uh, which is really exciting. Um, and that is her least known movie, which will now be uh, potentially her highest profile movie of all yeah. of them. Um, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I wonder if that movie getting a higher profile will make people seek this one out uh, a little bit more. I think it, they're so different <laughs> that I think it's kind of, you're kind of looking at two different audiences for those movies, despite yeah. the fact that we, we like both of them. Um, I think, they're very different kinds of movies. Um, but I, but I think, um, I think people will be pleasantly surprised by this movie. It's not for everybody, but I think, um, I think it's a, a solid, a solid eighties comedy. I keep saying eighties because I, I do feel like it's very eighties. Doesn't it, it seem eighties? It, it is completely of its time. <laughs> I mean, even pineapple express, like it, it was very much like it, it was two stoners in an eighties action movie. Basically. Oh, for sure. And this, I mean, but this is, there's no way that, this is not a timeless film. There's no, like, you're right. going to look at this and be like, oh, this could take place in any time. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, <laughs> this is very much a product of its time completely. I agree. Yeah. And I, 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 I totally echo your sentiment about how exciting it is that uh, the synchronicity of us deciding to do this mini season and uh, Criterion releasing uh, Mikey and Nikki is uh, fantastic, serendipitous even. Um, but no, I think I agree. I think it's hard because I think the the one true uh, gateway movie that could open up all of her films to an audience is the only yeah. one we're never get, we're not going to get for a long time, and that's and that's the, the Heartbreak Kid because I think uh, her first movie is very fun, very funny but super quirky and super yeah. dark. This movie is on the other end of that spectrum where it's more polished Hollywood style stuff. Mikey and Nikki are, is a, is an oddity that I think if she was able, if she was given more rain to try other things. We might've seen more of that type of film as well. But, uh, I, you know, I think because of just how it worked out, she just, you know, never given a chance to, expand past that and so you know going from that which was really daring kind of experimental in terms of uh what could be accomplished in that format of and that style and genre of film uh, that mikey and nikki is uh landing on kind of like a a softer safer bet with this movie with safer actors i mean it really does have all the makings to be a success you're taking the two biggest uh, as stars like coming out of uh, the 70s and putting them in a buddy comedy together. 
that should just be a hit, but because of you know how the how the press released and Warren Beatty has always uh, has always stated that he thinks Columbia Pictures and the new president at the time of production who didn't like the film didn't think it was good released all kinds of like bad press about it to try to stein to uh, sink it because he could probably make more money off of the uh, the insurance and failing box office of it and to also kind of like slate his place as this is my studio now and I'm not taking orders from any of these guys kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's probably a lot of credence to that as well, which, you know, it's a shame because, uh, she, she, Elaine may deserve better. And, uh, you know, hopefully she's, uh, she's not done making, I hope, hopefully after all of this resurgence and people talking about her and people giving little screenings and re-showing all of her films, I hope that she, is able to cobble together another film, some financing, some backers, mm. and make one more movie. Because um, I think, I think she probably has many more stories to tell, and I would be love to hear more of her stories. Yeah, me too. Um, well, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of her other stories uh, mm-hmm. next time. Um, but um, I uh, I am curious to see where you'll slot this. Uh, this fourth film of hers on her uh, filmography. What do you think? I'm. It's a. Uh, it's tough. Uh, it's above Mikey and Nikki. Okay. Um, and only because it was easier for me to enjoy. Like the tone hit me right away, right in the good spot, and got me into the film. Like it wasn't as hard to get into. And it kind of beats out the new leaf as well because that oh, wow. was also one that kind of had a hard like tone. Took me a bit to get into the tone, and once I got in, I did enjoy it a lot. Um, so I'm gonna put it. Mm, see, and the, right now it's gonna be uh, Mikey and Nikki at the bottom. I want to say Ishtar is next, New Leaf after that, and then Heartbreak Kid. But I need to watch. New Leaf and Ishtar a few more times to really kind of solidify their position in my, uh, in my thing, because, you know, New Leaf is really funny. And I think about a lot of moments from that movie since I've seen it. And, uh, Ishtar is just fresh off and I'm just thinking of just so awkward and so funny. (laughs) Like, I I think, I think, yeah, Ishtar, Ishtar and New Leaf could easily swap places constantly. Cool. Uh, Where where are you? I am going to put Ishtar at the bottom. Um, ah. I uh, really like this movie. I think it's a solid movie. I, I don't think it's super exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think her other three movies... I I like Mikey and Nikki more with each passing day. Okay. And I think, um, I think, her, I think those other three movies are truly great films uh that are are uh, you know must Mm -hmm. sees that everybody really should be seeking out um whereas i think this is just a a a better than average uh that's that that's slating it too much um yeah uh, i think it's a i think it's a a top shelf uh comedy for what it is um but i think there's 
not as much to it as uh, as those other three films. I can definitely see that. I, I like I said, it's uh, Mikey and Nikki. I can see growing as as the more I watch it. I'm looking forward to digging into all the supplements that the Criterion Edition is uh, bringing to the table because I think that would help my just understanding of the film and uh, enjoyment of the film grow more. Yeah, and and I do I do see what you're saying. I, I it is Mikey and Nikki is more bold in its uh, filmmaking and in type of style and story it's trying to tell, and I just think I was in the mood to watch a really no, I hear comedy, you. and yeah. it just kind of popped over over just a little bit. So, and I think I think the, also the sophistication, the subtlety of the humor here um, will probably build on rewatches so you know there there's definitely room for improvement here i'm not i'm not pouring cement over any of these picks except for the heartbreak kid which i i yeah i doubt i will uh will dethrone no i think that'll always be number one that that movie i still there's lines from that i repeat at work much much, much to a couple other guys who have seen the movies uh uh you know laughter so yeah, I think uh, I think that's I think that's a fitting, a fitting end to our discussion about her, uh, her work. And uh, next week we'll talk some more about some of her other stuff, right? Yep, and we'll we'll cover. She she did a uh, an hour documentary about um, Mike Nichols, her former partner. Uh, so we will uh, cover that and then talk a little bit about. The, her uh, other work and um, and sum up this uh, tragically brief season two. And with that, we're complete for another week. <laughs>